in any business, especially for the foreseeable future, you cannot guarantee a risk-free experience. That is just something that is simply off the table. You can do your best. This is going to be part of that recovery effort. It's not gonna be turning on a switch and everyone is gonna be ready to come back. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content for movie theaters. And I am joined, as always, by my magnificent co-host in New York City, Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro Magazine. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Russ. Uh, exciting week this week. Uh, did anything happen on Friday? Did you have a Good Friday evening? Yeah, no, nothing happened. Nothing. <laughs> nobody had to scramble with the whole slate of uh, release date changes. Uh, it, you know, it's almost like we're back to normal <laughs> with the Friday afternoon news dump. Before we get into that too deeply, we also this week welcome back Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and uh, Sean Robbins, the chief analyst at Box Office Pro. Uh, both of y'all, happy to have you back with us. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, Rebecca, I think this might be the first time we've done the podcast at the same time, so... Good to be on here with you as well. Good to be on here with you as well. Yeah. We're team box office. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it to the two of you. You two take over and uh, Daniel and I are going to go get a beer. Awesome. Well, Sean, okay, so let's talk about how much they suck. All right. Yeah. The Rocky <laughs> franchise is awful. Oh. Okay, wait, 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 wait. wait. <laughs> Okay, hold on, hold on. Let's do something different. As Daniel kind of implied, Friday had some really big news. Last week had some really big news overall. The biggest news was that Tenet, Christopher Nolan's new movie from Warner Brothers, which has been pegged as the big grand reopening title as movie theaters begin to reopen, was moved from its planned July 17 date to a new date of July 31. That raises a bunch of questions and uh, we want to begin to discuss them with Sean here. So Sean, my main question is with Tenet now pushed by two weeks, that's still pretty early in the reopening cycle. Can Warner Brothers possibly make enough money with Tenet on July 31st to justify opening the movie now rather than waiting for later in the fall? That's the million dollar question, and I, th yeah, I think at this point it's 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 anybody's guess. And but the fact that they moved it two weeks and didn't completely abandon that July seventeenth date, they positioned an Inception re-release there, which will effectively serve as a two week marketing campaign for Tenet. I think that still kind of indicates their confidence in being able to do it. But I think the the bigger impact of this and what we'll probably see for at least a few months, if not the rest of the year is how different these runs are going to be. And the fact that you know we could be talking about a much lower opening than we might usually expect, but a longer playability both domestically and worldwide, because it's true, not every major city, not every major market will be able to meet that immediate capacity you would expect under normal circumstances. So where I think this is kind of going is it's a big experiment and someone has to be the first to do it. And even though technically right now Mulan is scheduled before Tenet, uh, whether or not that stays, this is still going to be part of that big first experiment. And I'm sure Christopher Nolan, given his advocacy of the exhibition, exhibition industry, is is kind of okay with doing that because he has that reputation of of delivering films that eventually make back their money in spades. 
next week we're going to circle back and actually, you know, the discussion about the impact of tenants' date change, what it means by that point, potentially other date changes. We'll see what happens over the next few days. We're going to come back to that with next week's episode. So, Sean, thanks for chiming in. I appreciate your insights. And, you know, feel free to stick around as uh, we talk about Cine Europe, which is basically Europe's CinemaCon. Uh, it's the annual convention of Unique, uh, which we've discussed before. It's the trade association that represents European cinemas. There is some major news that's set in that market on that side of the world because one of the other big things that happened last week was that a planned acquisition of Cineplex by the UK's Cineworld uh, circuit fell through. Had that happened, it would have created basically the largest cinema chain in the world. It did not happen, and presumably there will be some pretty significant repercussions as we move forward. So Daniel, if you will kind of uh, lay things out for us as far as uh, what you got out of Cineworld so far and, and where things stand. So this was the second big uh, news story that, that we got as, as I was preparing to make dinner last Friday, and uh, we ended up ordering takeout after these two things came in. It's a huge story here in, our, in the exhibition community. Cineplex is the leading exhibition chain in Canada by quite some distance. Actually, Canada is a market that is kind of like Mexico, uh, led by two players, uh, the other one being uh, Landmark which is owned by another European entity, Canepolis. So you're in a situation in the Canadian market where you have two major players, one of them owned locally, Cineplex, uh, with a large concentration of screens in the country, and the other uh, now part of the Canepolis global network of theaters. We've been seeing this sort of globalization of the cinema industry here in the North American market for quite some time with a lot of multinational chains emerging over the last five years. So that acquisition uh, of Cineplex by UK-based Cineworld would have created the number one cinema circuit in the world with over 11,200 screens in markets that include the United States through Regal Cinemas, the second largest circuit in this country, the UK, Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, and Israel. It would have been a massive uh, circuit had the acquisition gone through. It was actually announced in December. And uh, there were a lot of eyes on whether that was going to happen or not once the onset of COVID-19 emerged. All of a sudden, uh, from what we can understand, which were two press releases uh, respectively sent by both companies, Cineworld is claiming certain breaches, using their words, to the agreement, allegations that uh, Cineplex is uh, denying. And it looks like this is going to be a messy situation that's going to be resolved in the courts. So what would have been probably the biggest business story in this industry has now completely been upended as another uh, casualty of the impact of COVID-19. Cineworld and, and Cineplex have both uh, made announcements as to reopening dates. Seems weird that that would be the second biggest bit of news in the last week for both of them. But <laughs> like Daniel said, the uh, the acquisition news is, is really major. Uh, Cineworld is going to be opening locations in England 
on July 10th. Uh, note that it is England. That's not the entire UK. Scotland, uh, Wales, and Ireland locations there. They're they're waiting on government regulations to uh, to ease up more before they announce a date. And with Regal, uh, which is owned by Cineworld, uh, the majority of theaters are going to open up on July 10th, uh, with the remainder opening up on July 24th. You know, it, it's kind of a, a similar situation uh, to what Sean spoke of in regards to tenants' release date being pushed back by two weeks. Uh, it looks like with this this reopening strategy, they're taking into account that um, the staggered nature of, uh, of markets opening up in the United States. Uh, and then in the case of Cineplex, uh, actually, as we record this, some locations of uh, the Rec Room, which is their uh, entertainment center concept, are actually opening up this week already. So by the time you're listening to it, they will have already opened up, uh, albeit in, in limited capacity. They're going to open six theaters in Alberta on, on June 26. And by July 3rd, uh, they plan to have opened up as many locations as they can, you know, obviously taking into account uh, legal regulations. So um, we've spoken before about about the situations with with Cinemark, with AMC, uh, but with this news that just came out earlier this week, the major chains in uh, in North America are all sort of coalescing around uh, that early to to mid July corridor. It's interesting, Rebecca, as you mentioned that these statements uh, or these press releases that came out from circuits have now painted a complete picture of when we can expect most of the major circuits, not only here in the United States, but also in Canada and in Europe, to reopen. And even though that July 17th date will not be the release of Tenet, it did sort of create this sort of pace setter for the rest of the industry to look at one uniform date as a sort of goal to have everything ready. That two-week push for the film now gives uh, all of these policies and sanitation guidelines that they'll be instituting, it gives them that extra sort of two-week push to implement them, enhance them, and adjust them uh, as need be. Kinepolis earlier this month announced an, an opening timeline. At this point, they have cinemas opened in the Netherlands, Spain, and Switzerland, and they do actually also have uh, chains in Canada. Landmark Cinemas of Canada is owned by Kinepolis, the second largest exhibitor there, and NJR Cinemas in, in, in the United States. There have not yet been any opening release dates for those. But actually, you know, going back to, to Cine Europe, David Hancock of Omdia had some information on where things stand within the European market. There are 53 you know, various markets open at this point. Um, yeah, so Kinepolis uh, over in Europe has seen cinemas open up in, in Netherlands, Switzerland, Luxembourg, and, and we've actually, uh, as, uh, as Sean can speak to, gotten some some box office insights for some of those European markets that have opened up over the last week or so. And you know, an- anecdotally, Rebecca, one of the things that that Eddie Deken was was saying at, at Cine Europe uh, during during the roundtable session was that they were actually seeing. Decent numbers, actually numbers above where they were before the the COVID crisis. Now, again, without any sort of you know, uniform uh, data, these these insights are completely anecdotal. But they do sort of point towards 
what the recovery is going to be looking like. It's looking like it's going to be a very slow recovery on a market-by-market basis that where we might see specific locations do particularly well and others take a little bit longer. I know uh, this weekend, Sean and I were pleasantly surprised to, for the first time in, what was it, Sean, three three months? About three months. That we got our first, yeah, our first box office report uh, and from Sony. What, what did it look like there? You know, it, it was encouraging. And I think it kind of speaks to everything you guys have been talking about because especially the point about the, the fact that there are encouraging signs. I think Denmark in particular was reporting that Little Women uh, was a big part in its ability to actually hit a 10-day market cum that was close to, if if not on par with pre-COVID attendance levels. And that's that's a big sign. And obviously that is not going to happen at the same exact time in every market. But for that to happen with that with practically no new product it is indicative of what I think we'll probably see play out, you know, on a on a bigger scale. Stephen O'Dell at Sony actually said something interesting about uh, that, that really stuck in my mind, which is that um, in Japan, and again, this is this is anecdotal from from him. There's we don't have any kind of data to back this up, but there's a, a culture of women going to the movies in groups, and that was a concern. Can you get women to go to the movies by themselves? and not in groups. And and when it comes to Little Women, they were really able to do that and and tap into that audience. You know, I'm I'm pleased about that because I am a big proponent of going to the movies by yourself. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But also I think, you know, as we go on in in the recovery process, you know, and and we've talked about this before, there's going to have to be some change to movie going culture. And and it's heartening to, to see that that can happen in a way that encourages safety. And all in all, Little Women ended up grossing $760,000 over the weekend from 440 screens in 13 markets, which actually pushes its overseas total to $99.5 million. Uh, Very good figures for a film coming back from a three-month layoff for cinemas and especially three months removed from that award season that created a big marketing push for that title. And I think it's also interesting to note that it is a Sony release. It was the Sony distribution team that sent us those updates, and they are next in line with the uh, the release of a movie on July 10th. So it it kind of gets that engine running again, and it sets the example, I think, for other studios. So we went from cinema evangelist Christopher Nolan becoming the first major wide release from a studio to Selena Gomez <laughs> reopening theaters around the world. That's 2020. You just can't predict it. And speaking of, you know, the theatrical experience that, uh, you know, definitely everyone, everyone on this podcast here loves so much, Mookie Greininger, CEO of Cineworld, spoke to that. And, and he echoed something that we've actually heard from other executives in this space before, which is that you want to be careful not to uh, create a hospital atmosphere in the cinema, is what he said. Uh, he said, you know, we believe that most of the customers are well aware of the things they need to be careful of. And most of them are aware of how to keep social distances. You know, I'm interested in in hearing your thoughts on that, just because coming at it from my perspective, when I hear, you know, most people know what to do. Most people will keep social distances. Uh, You know, this is a highly contagious disease and, and, and most people, but not all people doing stuff can, can definitely have adverse effects. Granted, we're talking about European markets here, whereas, um, you know, things are things are definitely 
different here in the United States in, in terms of government response. Yeah, but I mean, I'm just, you know, anecdotally seeing that a lot of a lot of people I know and a lot of my friends who um, are very heavy moviegoers are not comfortable going back anytime soon and, and especially are, are real hesitant with the lack of mask requirements. What are you guys' thoughts on that? <laughs> you know, I I kind of fall into that into that group. I am personally not ready to go back. And it's not a knock on any business and the the policies that they're enacting. I think they're doing as much as they realistically can. You know, I think that personally I I would be happy to see companies require mask wearing because everything that I see the data suggests that mask wearing by all parties involved in any sort of interaction is the most significant way to drastically reduce, you know, transmissibility. But I also understand why it's pretty difficult for a movie theater to require a mask because that requires enforcement and enforcement becomes very tricky, especially as we're also in the midst of nationwide protests. So it's like you start posting cops in front of theaters and that changes the dynamic. And and I can see why theaters don't want to do that. I don't think patrons want that either. But it means that it's less for me about what theaters are doing and it's more about the environment overall. It's more about whether I trust people. And like I trust y'all and I trust the people I know, but you know, the aggregate mass of random people out there, I don't trust so much because I can't put my family's well-being in their hands. I have to put it in my hands. And people won't necessarily know. I mean, you, you could be cleaning a theater, you know, constantly, all of it, all during waking hours. And 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 someone who maybe has, you know, has coronavirus and doesn't know it can come along and touch it five seconds later. And, and you, you can't take the risk down to zero. It's not possible. So a theater can do anything. And just a lot of people just aren't going to be ready. It's it's down to that, right, Rebecca? It's down to risk tolerance. I think in any business, especially for the foreseeable future, you cannot guarantee a risk-free experience. That is just something that is simply off the table. You can do your best. And I think when it comes to businesses, it's just understanding that this is going to be part of that recovery effort. It's not going to be turning on a switch and everyone is going to be ready to come back. Different people are going to have uh, different comfort levels in, in returning. And it's it's kind of falling into that perspective that, that Russ is saying of understanding what the limitations are in enforcing a policy and where uh, strongly suggesting or, or strongly promoting what role that can have. So yeah, it's going to be a very, very tricky uh, balance as we move into a very fractured reopening effort. It brings it full circle. I think why the discussion of reopening is just as important, if not more important than when's the first big movie coming out, because we're used to talking about what's the word of mouth going to be like for X movie, Y movie. That's not what the focus is. The focus now is what are people going to say about their experience during those early weeks of going back to the theater with, with or without new movies. And it, it might, it might, kind of be an interesting situation where there's that crossover of a lot of regular moviegoers aren't comfortable going back, but maybe some of the irregular moviegoers kind of become part of that target audience again that do want to go back. And there will just be, it kind of underlines why this is is such a different way to, to look at this. A lot of people will be comfortable. A lot of people won't. And it's figuring out who is who that's going to be kind of one of the big tasks of the next uh, few months. It's definitely a bigger topic than just movie theaters. I mean, every 
every exhibitor when they release their their plans have a little caveat and and necessarily so that our plans may change based on local government regulations whether that's local state you know federal whatever you know that doesn't really mean anything to a lot of people if they don't trust their local regulations and they don't trust their local timelines and they don't trust their local regulators like that's it's meaningless if they don't trust the guidelines that theaters are working off of in the first place. So theaters are in a tough spot for sure. They are. And some of the problem comes from the fact that those guidelines have been inconsistent since the beginning. Masks are a really good example of that, where we got in in the U.S. as a whole, we got very mixed messages beginning in February and March about whether or not people should wear masks. And you had guidelines saying don't wear masks. And the idea was to preserve a dwindling supply of PPE for professionals. But that message became just don't wear masks. And that became masks don't help. And then people were told to wear masks. It was very, there was no single unified direction as to what we should do and why we should do it and and what the effect could be expected to be if we did it and versus if we did not. And I think we're suffering the ill effects of that still. I think we're going to suffer the ill effects of that inconsistent messaging for months to come. And I think we're still seeing it rolling out in the fact that You've got territories in the, within this country that are opening in different ways under different rule sets and different policies. And that inconsistency makes it very difficult for everybody, makes it difficult for businesses. It opens the door to politicize the issue, as Daniel is saying, because as Rebecca said, you know, people don't trust things. And, and when your messaging has been inconsistent, that certainly undermines any sense of trust that people might be willing to extend. And I think that's going to be the uh, the key factor to to overcome. It's not a, a an issue that you can that you can address with a marketing campaign, right? Or, or it's not it's not an issue that, as you noted, Russ, that you can put additional safety measures or sanitation measures uh, to, to sort of address and, and, and assuage people. There are people that no matter what steps you take will not feel comfortable. And that's and that's neither good or bad. That's just, if anything, extremely understandable. This is a, a new crisis uh, that, that we're all sort of trying to, to scramble to, to understand how to deal with. For any business in the hospitality industry, you have to find that balance of understanding where your customers are coming from and not asking them uh, to go a step too far in, in coming in through your doors. It'll be a crucial challenge to overcome. I, I will say I, I don't look at it as an unsurmountable challenge. So I don't think that this means people are just going to throw their hands up, give up, and uh, and turn on uh, you know their TVs and stay indoors for another period. I think the demand to enjoy an out of home experience will be there. I don't think that has an expiration date. Uh, going back to Cine Europe, uh, Kathleen Taft, the, the head of global distribution at uh, the Walt Disney Company, mentioned that for the industry to really thrive, the at-home experience can't exist on its own. If it were all down to, if, if uh, at-home were the be-all, end-all, I would have watched Artemis Fowl by now, and I haven't, and I have no plans to. That's a good Artemis Fowl callback. I, I was going to say that's going to be the plot for Rocky. <laughs> fighting COVID-19. I can't wait for the training montage. 
Um, <laughs> but talking about in this in this vulgar transition I'm about to make, talking about uh, movies we haven't seen or that we've actually have started to, but for whatever reason not finished, it's uh, it's one of the movie questions we like to sort of end podcasts with in a bit of conversation. Our colleague Kevin Lally was telling us uh, about this anecdote in the '70s. He went to the cinema to watch. Uh, was it Black Sunday, uh, Rebecca? I believe that that was the title he was seeing uh, at the. It movies. was, but it wasn't the Barbara Steele one. It was a different one. It was a different. It was the Super Bowl bombing one? I think. Right. Yes. So he's watching this movie, and the blackout of New York City happens, and the entire movie theater, everything just stops. They have to leave the theater. And since 19, what was it, 1977, since that day, Kevin had not finished that movie until now where he's stuck at home 30 years later. He's finally able to finish that movie. I wanted to open this up to you guys. What's the one movie you've just never gotten around to finishing? I don't have the excuse of a blackout and I would need a really good excuse to make this justifiable. I don't. I'm going to get fired. I never finished Raging Bull. That silence is judgment. Yeah. How far did you get? How many rounds did you go? 15 minutes. I just wasn't feeling. King of Comedy I didn't finish because the secondhand embarrassment oh. was too bad and I just wasn't in the mindset. Raging Bull, I just put it on <laughs> like 10 years ago and 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 just, I, I mean, I'll get back to it. One of these days. Oh, there's enough disaffected males in the in the film journalism <laughs> side to to you know you really you you haven't I've missed much. The, I think a lot of the. <laughs> main I've seen points. the Age of Innocence. You know, I've seen all the good. You know, all the good Michelle Pfeiffer Scorsese's. <laughs> the most recent one on my mind was was probably um, Men in Black International. I I just couldn't do it, and I love I love those movies. I mean, mainly the first one and the, the third one, but. Yeah, we. I think we rented that. Last, I didn't even see it in the theater, so guilty on that one. But yeah, it, it just—that's the most recent one I can think of, and really one of the few. I, I, I really—if either something looks appealing enough for me that I will sit through it for two, two and a half hours, or it just doesn't look appealing and I, I don't give it a shot. That was kind of one that uh, that snuck through that crack. Has anyone walked out on anything? Oh, so many things all the time. All the time. But I, I'm obsessive compulsive in the sense that um, if I've if I've committed, say, 60 minutes to a film, I'll, I'll finish it out. The only time that hasn't happened, I walked out of the uh, show East uh, trade screening of La La Land because I was hungry. And it, it came to should I sit through a second hour of this or is Pad Thai better? And I can tell you the Pad Thai was much better, uh, but I did end up eventually end up finishing that film and not regretting uh, that walkout at the time. The one exception, and this happens to me all the time, and I'm, I'm going to put him on the spot, so you guys need to have my back on this if, if it splashes back on me. Our CEO, uh, Julian Marcel, I'm calling you out, has this sixth sense for calling me like 20 minutes into press screenings, like without fail. Uh, like 80% of the press screenings I attend in the first 20 minutes, my phone will be buzzing. It's going to be our boss. And I'll spend the rest of the, uh, of the screening time pacing outside of the auditorium in, uh, in some sort of like 7.45 PM uh, phone call. They're shifting things over. So now I'm expecting those phone calls to happen at, at 7 AM rather than, than 7 PM. So I guess that's one of the pluses uh, as we enter the second half of the year. 
But uh, because of that, uh, probably, you know, there's countless movies. Maybe the Neighbors sequel uh, I was talking to Rebecca about was one of those where I'm laughing my butt off 15 minutes in, and then I just, I, I've never gotten around to uh, to finishing it. It's a fine film. I've walked out on a couple, but they weren't for reasons of disliking it. Like I walked out of uh, the CinemaCon screening of Inside Out because I had other things to do and didn't want the movie to be spoiled because I wanted to see it with like a regular audience when it came out and Inglorious Bastards. We walked out on that one because literally in the middle of the third act, the uh, the film projector shut down. So we had to walk out on that one. But yeah, that one. Was, but you were able to finish that. Oh yeah, they gave us tickets and we came back oh, that, the next day. Different. But all right, that's that, that's a key part. What what <laughs> haven't you been able to finish, Ross? Have you been able to to come up with one? I didn't know about this TV movie that Wes Craven made, uh, the director of Nightmare on Elm Street and whatnot. Uh, he did a, a TV movie called Invitation to Susan Hell. Lucci. Yes. Susan Lucci, <laughs> 1984, Robert Urich, Susan Lucci. And it's a weird kind of like family moves to a new town and, and they uh, sort of get pulled into this, uh, you know, the country club, which makes up the society, which is uh, run by sort of like, uh, you know, it's, there's a conspiracy cabal sort of thing that's uh, behind this country club that sort of sets up the society. I tapped out after about a half an hour or, or 45 minutes. I did just kind of get bored, mostly because it just made me want to watch the movie called Society, oh which God. is <sighs> in a lot of ways about very sim- similar things, but Society is like super goopy and st- like a really weird movie. Um, so Invitation to Hell, I was you, just- you, you, didn't, you didn't miss out on Invitation to Hell. I, it's not good. Susan Lucci wears some really good clothes in it, and the final third where Susan Lucci goes full like- Hi, I'm Satan. I'm Susan Lucci. Welcome to hell. Just That's for, good. For the record, Rebecca finished both these movies, but couldn't make yes. it past 15 minutes of Raging Bull. I'm just saying Raging that in, yeah. in the friendliest way possible. Oh, society is, society is amazing, but it's it's disgusting. Yes, society is a is a wonderful, gross movie. Uh, it's society is a very good society is one of those movies that's sort of like it's a good in crowd movie. Like you meet somebody and you're talking to them randomly, and society comes up, and when you realize you both like that movie, you're like, oh, we can probably be friends because you like this really bizarre thing. Thank you, everyone, for listening again. Uh, please share our show with your friends. Please rate us on uh, iTunes or uh, Apple Podcasts, as it is now, I guess, uh, and or any other place that you like to listen to podcasts. Uh, and subscribe, if you will. Um, also, please feel free to write in and uh, tell me that I'm insane for thinking Selena Gomez has a more active fan base than Christopher Nolan. We'll be back next week with another episode. As previously mentioned, uh, we'll discuss some of the implications of uh, Tenet's move and uh, look at other uh, news that is broken in the interim. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Caitlin Kehoe and recordeditpodcast.com. This episode was written by Daniel Luria and Rebecca Polly, and it was narrated by me and Daniel and Rebecca and our guest, Sean Robbins. Thanks all for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>